suddenly I'm feeling great. Do you like me now? We are Hottest 100s and Thousands, and we have taken control of your radio station. This is the podcast in which we talk about the songs that have been deemed hot enough to be in the Triple J Hottest 100. My name is Adam Buncher, and I'm one of the two voices that you're going to be hearing for the next however long this goes for. I, we did say that the next time you'll be hearing from us, we will be talking about the top 10 of 1997. Uh, for various reasons, haven't been able to get that happening yet, so instead we've organised something a bit different and very, very special. When we do talk about the top 10, it's going to kick off at number 10 with what is one of the best-loved Australian songs of all time. I think that's very fair to say. Leaving Home by Jebediah. And I'm honoured to say that one of the people behind that song, the voice of Jebediah and actual friend of the show, Kevin Mitchell, a.k.a. Bob Evans, is joining me on the line right now for a little bit of a chat. Kevin, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here, mate. Uh, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I, mean, I was in two minds about this because, like you said, you know, I, I do listen to the podcast and I the day when one of my own songs came up, I was very anxious about and now you know now that i'm actually on it it's just, it's it's like a weird sort of inception moment or something <laughs> I, don't know. I, I kind of what i really want right is for some one of you guys yeah um to just to rip the song to shreds just so that i know that's it's all all things are being fair and equal. Well, well, as I said, we're about to talk about leaving home, so no guarantees. You know, I'm not. I can't speak for anyone else here. Um, I know I may have given away somewhat of what I think uh, in the intro to the song, but you know, I could go back and listen to it again and really try and find some things to hate if you wanted. <laughs> Yeah, I'd appreciate that. Okay, all right. Well, I will, I will do my best as much as I can. Now, you did mention that you you are a genuine listener to the podcast, and I think I can speak for everyone when I say that the the day that you tweeted and let us know that is probably like a highlight for us doing this podcast in general. How how did it come about? Are you just an avid podcast consumer? Well, I am now. I was kind of late to it. I only really discovered podcasts. I mean, I'd heard about them, but I only sort of started digging around a couple of years ago, and yeah, came across yours, and I thought, okay, you know, that sounds like something up my alley. As like, it was funny because, like, you know, when you first start listening, it just—I couldn't even tell how many people were talking. It seemed like there was a lot more people talking than there actually was. I right. thought there were like at least five people. Hey, this um, is good because, like, we critique things, but this, this is us actually getting critiqued now. So, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. So now I'm critiquing the podcast. But, so, and at first I was kind of like, oh, you know, there's just all these people kind of like talking and shouting all the time. I don't know what I don't know what's going on. But I <laughs> but I what kept on listening and it drew me in. And then and the thing that I find probably the most fascinating about listening to the podcast is just the point of view of listening to people who you guys obviously were really, really young when these songs came out. Definitely, yeah. And so your perspective on that whole time I find really fascinating because it's a kind of a different generation talking about the 90s and, and a period of time where I was where I was sort of an adult just. Mm, mm. I just find that kind of quite interesting. Yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad that, you know, you're finding enjoyment in that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I can't believe it sometimes that hearing like how old some of you guys were when some of these songs and the fact that you remember the song and everything because when, at the time, you just have no concept that that's happening because the only... The only real concept you have of your audience is are the ones that are looking at you when you do a live gig. 
Yeah, I mean, oh, the definitely. idea that there's like some nine-year-old kid hearing your stuff or getting into your stuff, it just never even occurs to you. And mm. also, too, like when I was nine, I was listening I was listening to this awful, terrible music. Um, I had awful taste. I just think, God, man, at nine years old, you were like getting into the living end and stuff. <laughs> it's so crazy to me. Well, it, it was around, but you know, I'm not going to let you just bypass saying that you had terrible taste when you were nine years old without asking for at least one specific example here, mate. Uh, but, okay, Bon Jovi. Wow. Some people will take you to task for saying that's terrible, man. A lot of people who are who are at singing karaoke at the pub last night, in particular. Okay, but, but what I'll say, rather than you know saying I had terrible taste, right. I will say I was I listened to music that was very mainstream. Yeah, I had absolutely no idea of anything that was going on that was outside of like the top twenty, and it's stuff that I don't really have much interest in anymore. <laughs> sure. Okay. Well, I mean, since we're in this kind of territory, what was it that made you kind of go like, okay, music, yeah. Yeah, that is, that's a good question. I mean, I started writing music when I was about 12, and that's why I started to learn guitar, because I needed an instrument, because I was just pretty much just like making up all these songs in my head. Really? That's how it started? You just kind of were making up little yeah, songs in your, in your head for yourself? Just imagining songs. And I think it was around about that time, and then learning to play guitar, and then meeting other people that also play guitar, and those people kind of getting into stuff. I also had older brothers who introduced me to, you know, punk rock and stuff like that, and by the time I was sort of 13 and 14, that was when Nirvana kind of happened. And so, of course, I just kind of, you know, went really deep into the whole grunge right. thing because it was just so exciting. And and then it was, you know, Triple J and Big Day Out and just living that whole life of, of all of those things together. It just felt like, I mean, I know everybody probably at that time in their life probably find something exciting that's going on. But yeah, for me, it was it was that. It felt like there was some kind of mini revolution happening and, and I was kind of at a really good age to to experience it because I was still, you know, only just a teenager. Well, I'm sure many people would agree with you. I am continually fascinated about what it would have been like when certain things broke because that's another thing about kind of retrospectively and retroactively going back and enjoying things and whatever is that you already have the weight of legacy there. Mm. And I, I wonder like what it would have been like to put in Nevermind on the day that Nevermind was released, for example. Yeah. Well, if you, I didn't discover Nevermind probably until about a year after it was released. It was, unless you were, you know, older and really had, you know, had your kind of finger on the pulse. A lot of people didn't know about Nevermind, even in the States, it was a bit of a slow build that record, you know? Yeah. It wasn't really until the, the following year after it was released that it started getting really big over here. So that, that's my memory of it. So, yeah. So, I mean, I kind of, by the time I got into Nirvana, or I got into Nevermind, I didn't have to wait too long for the next record to come out, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so I was kind of late, but I was pretty, you know, so that was good. And, and in utero, I ended up, you know, it's now probably my favorite Nirvana record over Nevermind, just I think it stands up to repeated listens a bit better. You know, just I think because the production is just a bit more of a varied, interesting record. Nevermind is an amazing album, but, you know, after repeated listens, there's not a lot more to discover. I find with In Utero, you can, every time I listen to that record, I discover something new about it. Yeah. Do you find that you're like that with uh, a lot of the music that you listen to, that there's the kind of accessible, big hit stuff that you kind of get across really quickly, and then you just end up falling in love more deeply with, with some of the deeper cuts or some of the lesser-known material? Is that a trend that you notice with your own listening? 
Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, if I sort of cast my mind across, you know, just some of my favourite records of all time, my favourite songs are never the single or the first one that I discovered or anything. It's, yeah, it's always album tracks. The, from repeated listening, just that you discover just maybe because, I mean, I don't know, there's a reason why songs are chosen by record companies and stuff or, or radio to be singles because they have that sort of immediate accessibility and that's their strong, often their main strength. But um, obviously, you know, great records are full of incredible songs that never get played on the radio. Exactly. And it's something that I'm finding more and more as we go along with the podcast, but also just kind of in my own life and whatever, like there's no accounting for the power of context and relationship when it comes to what you like in songs. Yeah. 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 I, I look at like, you know, just because I'm thinking about Nirvana now, yeah. and, you know, my favorite song on that record is uh, a song called Frances Farmer Will Have Her Revenge on Seattle. That was the one only Nirvana song I could kind of take to a desert island. That would be it. And that's, you know, probably considered a fairly deep cut, I would suggest. All right, now we're going to talk about leaving home, which is not—it's okay. <laughs> not a Jebediah you know, deep cut. It's so much more fun talking about other band. Okay, let's do it. Let's rip the band off. <laughs> we'll we'll get back to it, man. I swear, we'll, we'll we'll circle around to other music once again. But you talk about you know just walking around and, and humming songs to yourself and making up songs in your head, and you know that being the the way that things got started. So like leaving home, I guess. What was the process? Like, did that start with Little Melody in your head as well? Uh, no, I think that probably from memory, just getting the chord progression the chord progression together really quickly and, yeah, attaching a melody to it while at, at the time that I was playing it on guitar and then taking it into, you know, the band room. I can, I can remember the day it kind of happened too because we were in Melbourne. I think we were supposed to be rehearsing. We were going into the studio to do a single called Jerks of Attention. So this was in around sort of 96. Yep. And, yeah, we kind of bashed it out in the studio. And pretty much the whole song was written and, and, and the way that you hear it today, you know, in a very, very short space of time. Lyrically, it was, you know, <laughs> fairly stream of conscious. I, I I moved out of home when I was 18 in, in around 1996. And there are lines like, um, I could hear through the door as people came in laughing at the way they acted when they were alone. And, I can remember writing that line because I was, <laughs> I was literally, I was sitting in my bedroom of my share house, like writing lyrics for the song, and just not really knowing what to write about. And then suddenly I heard the front door open, and my housemates and friends and stuff who I don't know they'd been out somewhere, all came home and they they were all talking and stuff. And as they walked down the hallway past my door, I heard them all talking. And that's that's literally why I wrote that line. Um, you know, back then. I, and I feel differently about this now, obviously, many years later. But at the time, for me, it kind of felt like the lyrics were really just there to kind of... I don't know. They, they didn't seem like the most kind of important part of the song. They served a purpose. But for me, it was... The melodies and stuff were so much more important. I, I kind of... Yeah. I didn't really have a, a, a real appreciation for good lyrics at that point in time. I, I think that developed over time. You know, and now it's one of my favorite things about music. But yeah, at the time, I mean, you know, I think a lot of my influence was kind of in that, coming from that sort of punk rock kind of thing. And it was more about attitude than sometimes than what you, you know, what yeah. you're actually saying. <laughs> yeah, the appreciation for lyrics is, is, I think, across the board, something that you develop a little bit more as, as you get older. There's, yeah. enough, there's enough in music when you are not used to music to get excited about without looking at lyrics. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah. like, look, look at a band like the Ramones and stuff, you know. I mean, they, they did have some pretty great lyrics at times and some funny lyrics. But oh, they definitely. Also had just some, sometimes they were just kind of dumb. And that was kind <laughs> of fun about it, you know. Yeah. Like, sometimes, it, you know, if you had a good line or a good few words in the chorus, that was your lyrics kind of done, and then everything else was just kind of filling in the gap. Yeah. I used, to, I used to write a lot of lyrics right at the last minute in the studio before recording them. But, yeah, I always kind of felt like if I had lyrics for the chorus done, well, then that was kind of 90% of the my work done. Yeah. The last 10% was just kind of filling in all those gaps around it. I'm interested to uh, to hear you say that, you know, at the time, you, you know, you were just kind of throwing lyrics out there, but looking back now, you feel differently. When you when you read the lyrics to Leaving Home now, what's your relationship to it? I mean, look, I, I like it. I mean... <laughs> I, I, Good start. I like, it, but, I like it, but in the way, I like it just more for... It's like a kind of looking at a, a photo album and a, a something from your past, and you know that brings back good memories. I mean, I, I like the song more now for what it means to other people than for me personally. I mean, right. I hate rehearsing it, but I love playing it live. Right. Okay. Um, so okay. I'd be happy to never rehearse that song ever again for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, but okay. I would, I would hate to never perform it live. That would be you know every time we play it live, it's so much fun. Do you perform it differently now to, to when you did? I mean, like, obviously, you're a completely different person and whatever, but, it, you know, noticeably, it, it, I, I don't know what I'm asking here. I guess, like, you, it would, yeah, it, like, you don't try and emulate the way that you performed it earlier. You, you, you just try and bring all the, the relationship that you have to the song now when you perform it live? Well, honestly, we just play it the way we've always played it. I mean, if we try to reinterpret it or do anything, to, you know, it's not... It's not bloody rocket surgery, as yeah. they say. I guess, you know, yeah. Trying to trying to turn it into something else, it's like my bother, you know. It is, it is what it is. That's what. I yeah. Mean, we have reinterpreted a song once before, and we got crucified for it. Like, oh. <laughs> that single jerks of attention. Um, yeah, yeah. The single that we were recording when we wrote "Leaving Home," we that single came out and everything, and and you know people seemed to like it and then when we went to the studio to make the record we re-recorded it and we re-recorded it really slowly and everyone hates it and that's the version that's on the album and I was back to think oh, that was such a stupid thing to do we were so young and stupid um, we, sh- we, you know, we should have just chucked a single version on the record we would have had less work to do yeah. and everyone would have been happier so I don't know I guess sometimes you know, you got to know when to leave stuff alone I guess sometimes I, I understand that. Look, and I'm, I'm going to be honest, the reason why I, I kind of fumbled that last question is because I was tiptoeing around one particular element of Jebediah that, that is no longer don't kind tip, of... Don't stop tiptoeing, go on. Well... Get to the point, boy. Your voice, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> it's iconic now, um, and certainly very distinctive and very unique in the way that yeah. you sang and performed yeah. in, in Jebediah back then. Obviously, di- completely different to how you now perform and how you perform under under Bob Evans and whatever. So I guess I just kind of wonder, uh, where did that come from at the time? I really don't know. I mean, <laughs> it came from just the fact that I'd never sung in a band before. I was the first band I'd ever been in, and I didn't know what what I was doing. I, but I do sort of remember at the time. Well, there was just a lot of dudes in bands trying to sing like Eddie Vedder at the time. I mean, this is right late nineties. I, like, I can see that like. In the later years of the 90s, all those American bands that have Eddie Vedder-type voices and stuff, it was it felt like everyone was doing it, and I, it, it used to really piss me off. So I think I ended up sounding the way that I did more because of what I didn't want to sound like 
rather than what I want it to sound like. And again, I think that's like just the punk rock thing I, of just wanting to be a little bit provocative or something. Sometimes it was kind of fun to annoy people, you know, or to totally, have yeah. that attitude of just like provoking some kind of response, whether it be good or bad. Yeah. And and that was a lot of the attitude, I guess, of of what we were doing. At the same time, also, you know, having a lot of fun. And But yeah, I, I mean, it was a long time ago. I was a teenager. <laughs> Very hard. <laughs> hard to, to kind of put yourself back that many years, you know? Well, I mean, like, I, I certainly appreciate just how Australian that it actually really is. You know, and I think cool. certainly the influence that that has kind of had throughout Australian music is, is kind of there. I can draw that parallel now. I think a lot of other bands are even the ones that are coming through today are kind of doing similar things, at least to my ears. So, you know, oh, I totally, yeah. yeah. I, I think like these days I hear a lot more of Australianness in, you know, the music that's coming out now compared to, you know, when we first started. And yeah. I think that's a really cool thing, you know, like trying to, yeah, getting past, I guess, that kind of cultural cringe, you know, trying to sound like Americans or English. There's a, there's a pride in it now, and I, and I think it's very interesting to see how often it skirts around punkish kind of genres as well. Mm. There's a, there's definitely some parallels there in terms of what you were doing. All right, so I want to talk about the Hottest 100 Day of 1997. Do you remember it? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> So, okay, so when did you first find out that you got included into the countdown and especially number 10? I think I probably would have found out the next day. We were touring all the time. We were all, sure. right? so we were all based in Perth, right? So what we used to do was jump on a plane, fly somewhere over east, let's say Brisbane, and then we'd just get in a van and, and we'd tour for weeks and weeks on end. And we were doing it constantly. And I just think we probably were on tour we were probably traveling and playing a show somewhere and 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 it's not to say that you know we weren't excited about the idea of a song it was just a very busy time for you guys yeah on the on the countdown you know we would have all been really excited about that but um there was just a lot of stuff going on and things were really kind of happening quickly for us there was a lot of cool shit happening all the time and yeah i guess that was just kind of one of one of them. By that logic, it wasn't really something you expected. I don't think so, no. We were constantly having our expectations blown out of the water at that point in time. We couldn't understand why there was as much fuss about the band as there was. You know, I think we were fairly naive and, and also, too, we weren't trying to manufacture or construct anything, you know. We were really just trying to please ourselves and have fun. So, yeah, when when all this great stuff was kind of almost felt like it was falling into a lap. Sometimes it kind of just felt a little bit like, why, why is this happening to us? There's so many better bands going around right now. <laughs> That's so beautiful. <laughs> so when you did find out that it did get into number 10, was it just kind of like a thing that you went, oh, cool, and then it didn't really have any further impact from there, or did you kind of clock... Oh right, like that's a that's a big deal, and it, it, did it motivate or did it create pressure or anything like that? Nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> Too cool, man. <laughs> I, I, I was not tired to be cool, honestly. I mean, I I can remember feeling like lots of pressure going into making our next record because mm. by that by that point in time, Solid Way, you know, sold heaps, and I I do remember there was pressure then and and anxiety and stuff. But at the time, the Leaving Home came in number ten at the Hottest One Hundred. It was just a cool thing that happened, and now we've got another show to play. I know that sounds kind of like I'm being a little bit blasé, but that's that's kind of the way that I remember it. 
do you think that's partly because the Hottest 100 occupied a bit of a different space to what it does now? I think you could be right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. back then, it was really just something that happened within this little sphere of Triple J. And, right. and these days, it's like, I imagine that there are people that only listen to Triple J on the day that the Hottest 100 is on. That would never be the case in 1997. And now, like, it'll, like the next day, it'll be, there'll be an article about it in the bloody Herald Sun or whatever. Oh, um, and, and the think pieces and the blogs yeah, right. and the stats and, yeah. That was just not the situation back then. If the Hottest 100 and getting number 10 there, it was a cool thing, but it wasn't, like, one of the more impactful things. Can you remember some of the other big Jebediah moments from 1997 that really stick out in your memory now? It was the first year that we ever went to the ARIA Awards. All right. <laughs> we were nominated for um, Best New Talent. We lost to the Super Jesus. Fuckers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I remember it well because um, it was the year that Savage Garden won just yep. about every single award. They won so many. They won just about everything. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. What else? I mean, obviously, when the record came out that year and in September of 97, it came out. It came out and it went straight into the top 10, which, of course, that was definitely a big deal for us. We weren't expecting that. Really, 98 was kind of like a bigger year for us than 97, in a way, because cause the record kind of just built and built over 12 months. And correct me if I'm wrong, but 98 was also the support for the Smashing Pumpkins, right? That's right. What was that like? It was weird, because I had been a big Smashing Pumpkins fan, of course, as pretty much... You know, everyone my age listens to Triple J. I mean, Smashing Pumpkins were right up there. Yeah. Um, their first two albums, and even the third one, the double album, to a slightly lesser extent, I really love. You know, on my graduation day of high school, me and Chris and two other kids from my class, we played today by the Smashing Pumpkins at our graduating assembly at our high school. That's a classy graduating song. I like that. That's <laughs> that's a lot better than Time of Your Life. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't no. you think it's time by Bob Evans? <laughs> hey, have you heard that you get a graduation song? Do you, does that one really get in? Yes. Oh, yes, mate. Yes. Yeah, I've heard, I've, I've You're part it. of the club. <laughs> You're in there with vitamin C. <laughs> but, uh, but so anyway, so when we got to this tour in 98, it was a pretty significant change in their sound, and I wasn't really kind of on board for it. Sure. And, but, you know, still, just to be playing shows Smashing Pumps was like, yeah, well, the new album's kind of, I don't really like but fuck it, Smashing Pumps, it's going to be great. Yeah. But it kind of, it was a bit disillusioning because we turned up to the first show at, you know, Entertainment Centre or wherever it was. You know, you're down there in the bowels of the venue where all the rooms and stuff are. I remember walking down the hallway, I walked past all these doors and I see one door, it's got the name Billy Corgan at the front, then you keep walking and there's Darcy, James, like, and it's like, these guys hang out in their own rooms. I thought bands were supposed to be like a gang of mates that, you know, hung out together and got drunk. And it just seems so like, oh, geez, is that what happens? Is that what happens when you... You know, and I I found it really... I guess, like like I said, you know, we were quite naive. And I I guess that was kind of an introduction to a concept of maybe what it's like at the top when you're Mm. touring the world all the time. And none of them... I said a lot. I never met any of them. I just didn't really seem like they were enjoying the, themselves much. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, d- details are coming out even now about the Smashing Pumpkins at that time and how little fun they were having. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I certainly 
got that impression. Yeah. yeah. Well, were there any other bands that you met around that time that were kind of the, the the panacea or opposite of that, that you went, okay, no sick, like you can still stay mates when you're at the top? At that level, not so much. I mean, we used to put a sound garden around that time too, and they were fucking really serious as well. But, you huh. know, like for me, like, I mean, I held UMI up as you and I were like as important to me as Nirvana and they used to give us gigs and, and they were always like, you know, super supportive and cool and inviting us to hang out after shows. And, and that was huge for me. I mean, that was a massive deal to just kind of be embraced into the, uh, yeah. <laughs> the club. I'm really glad that that's the way that story ended because if you had said like, <laughs> I remember UMI and they were dicks as well, I'd be like, no, that can't be true. Uh, no, definitely. Not. Hey, you know what? Actually, there is one band who are fucking awesome and who you guys have spoken about quite a bit in your sh- podcast. Yeah. Um, the President of the United States. Yes! Again, I'm glad. Fucking awesome. Like, we toured with them. We did a big tour with them. It was them headlining, custard in the middle slot, and we were the opener. That's a and dream lineup. It was so fucking cool. And those guys, you know, they, they hang out. They, I mean, they came. They were in Perth. At the time that Jeb and I were launching, I think it must have, might have been a single or an album. Or, anyway, and they came to our gig. They wore our T-shirts. You know, they were just like really, really, <laughs> really cool. And, That's sick. And, and, having, and they were having a lot of fun. And, and at that time, you know, they were playing entertainment centers and shit. They were pretty massive. So, yeah, there is, there is that as well. And, of course, you were signed to Murmur at the time. You were label mates with... Silverchair, something for Kate, now other huge iconic Australian acts. Was there a real fraternity in the Australian music scene at that time? I think so. That was my experience of it. And, you know, I'm always trying to try to kind of keep in mind that not everybody has would have that experience. And I'm sure if you asked some people from that time, they'd say that it wasn't like that. But I remember it being really, really healthy and really, really good. I mean, you know, I, I can remember me and Phil from Grinspoon and Sarah from CBGs was like calling ourselves the uh, class of 98 because, you know, <laughs> that all started kind of at the same time and we're, we were all kind of at the same level and there wasn't a feeling of competition, you know. We, we would hang out and I was so happy with how everything was going that feeling competitive just did. I don't think it really entered our, entered our heads and, and a lot of the kind of bands that, we kind of looked up to like Magic Dirt and New Amai and Spiderbait and Regurgitator and Tumbleweed, all those fans that we used to go custard as well, that we used to go as all ages kids, you know, go to shows and stuff. They were all like really, really nice and supportive and cool and and still are to this day. And my experience was that, was that it was a pretty good time and a pretty healthy scene. And also too, like, you know, a lot of those bands that I mentioned, those people and a lot that I haven't are still going still playing shows and you know we're just all older now you know we're all you know entering or well and truly into middle age you know families and all that kind of stuff but so (laughs) when we get together it is kind of a little bit more funny than it used to be right (laughs) there's a there's a classic tim rogers quote one of his many um that went something along the lines of you know hey kids if you think being in a rock band is in your 20s, wait till you're in your 40s. It's freaking hilarious. <laughs> I think when I last, uh, first and last time I saw you and I, which is at the uh, the Fairgrounds Festival last year, he said something similar like, um, 
join a rock band, ruin your life, or something like that. Like, hey, kids, you should definitely do this. Join a rock band, ruin your life. Like, <laughs> just off the cuff. Yeah. It is a very much a double-edged sword because you, you do kind of exist in a bit of a bubble. Yeah. And when the inevitable thing happens and, you know, you're not the most popular, coolest thing going around anymore, and, you know, I think that can be quite difficult for a lot of people to navigate through. Sure. And obviously why... I expect a lot of bands break up. <laughs> so on that, I mean, like you've managed to keep an immense amount of longevity in your professional relationship to to music. When you did get to those points, what was it that you think made you keep going? Look, I know it's going to come off sounding cheesy, but it's the truth. So fuck it. I think it's just because we were still enjoying each other's company. We were still and still are good mates. And if we roll up to a gig and you know. It's a bit shit. We always find a way to kind of just have a laugh about it. I, I also think, too, we, we kind of went in with very modest kind of goals, yeah. <laughs> career goals, that, that were all exceeded so quickly. And it's not like we put a, a band together going, we're going to be the best, biggest band in the world and this is what we're going to do. It was really just like we put a band together, honestly, just because we wanted to hang out and have fun. And when success happened, it was, it was great. And when we then entered into the period of where things have gone very, really up and down ever since, it's just relatively easy to kind of ride through those patches that aren't so good because we still just dig hanging out and getting drunk and having fun together. And then when, you know, things turn around and, you know, you have unexpected kind of good periods, which has happened with Jebediah in the recent times because, I don't know, this weird thing has happened where all those nice people now are like me and middle-aged have kids and they're all trying to go back out and, <laughs> have fun, have yeah. fun again after you know they're, they're just starting to come. They've been in the darkness of rearing children for like the last ten years, <laughs> and now their children are starting to like grow up. Because this is kind of where I'm at now. You know, my youngest is just about to start school. I mean, for the last seven years, pretty much just been in that zone. And and you know, yeah, you do kind of get to a point where it's like, ah, oh, I'm gonna go out and have fun again. You know, and the last few years of touring with Jeb's have been really, really great. Yeah. Uh, except instead of doing big day out, it's doing a day on the green. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, Mum's had a few. She's dancing on the that's dancing right. on the lawn. Mum's had one too many candies. <laughs> that's all right. The, the kids are with the sitters. Instead of like throwing beer bottles at the band, you're throwing like uh, hummus. And, uh... <laughs> really, really nice hummus. <laughs> <laughs> right, a halloumi, and everyone brings you know rugs and blankets because you know. It'll be fucked if you're going to be standing up all day. Dude, I'm not even middle-aged, and I love a bougie festival. Um, okay. <laughs> Get comfy with music. It doesn't always have to be sweaty pits, you know? I'm about it. There's room for both. Honestly, you've got to laugh, and you, you if you take yourself too seriously, I mean... You're Billy Corgan. <laughs> well, you know, just getting back into the... The thing of like why we haven't broken up, we've never taken ourselves too seriously. We've had our moments, sure, but generally speaking, we're able to kind of laugh at the absurdity of 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 what being in a rock and roll band is. There's so much silliness; it's so unreal. You can't take that shit too seriously, you know. All right, so we'll get back to talking about the music you love, um, as I promised. Uh, we've just come off the remix episode for 1997, where we've talked about some songs that we would have wanted to be in the 1997 countdown. You've, what kind of songs do you love from the 1997 countdown yourself? And what would you have liked to have seen included that wasn't? Is there anything that you can think of? Um, 
Well, at the time, I remember we were really, really, really into this band called Fur. They were a um, an all-girl, pretty heavy punk rock band. We used to tour a lot with them. And, you know, <laughs> like what, when we toured, our slightly, the albums that we did for Slightly Odd Way, that Fur were the middle band, and guess who the opening band was? I think I can, but go ahead and tell me. <laughs> Your favourite band, Beaverloop. <laughs> oh, we're here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what would Beaverloop like? Oh, that was great fun, you know. Yeah, all right. But this is, this is a thing, like, you know, hearing you guys kind of listen to it. Just, I can totally understand. Okay, like, oh, yeah, that's good. That for the first time, you're just thinking, what the fuck is this? <laughs> yeah, look, it's... <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of weird, like, because... I didn't think that time would be as kind to Jebediah as it has been. I think what we did is still kind of okay. But, you know, there's some stuff where you listen back and just go, yeah, I remember this being a lot better at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, anyway, so Fur, well, they were an awesome band. And I don't know if, I think they maybe in the future they do get a song in the Hottest 100, so you might stumble across them. But uh-huh. um, they, were, they were really, really great. I probably would have voted for one of their songs. Uh, who else was in 97? I mean, have you, has there been big, heavy stuff? Have they? No, I haven't heard any big, no, heavy stuff. No. Big, heavy stuff were brilliant around about that time. Band from Sydney, fronted by Greg Atkinson, who was from a band in the 80s called The Ups and Downs, who I'm not, I was never really familiar with. But big, heavy stuff were really, really great. So, yeah, I don't know. There's a couple that that I can remember. I mean, in the in the... I probably should talk about songs in the top ten, should I? Because you know, you guys haven't got there yet. Oh well, no, you can go ahead. Like we'll just <laughs> we, we can just cut you in if you want. It's like and and here's what Kevin had to say. <laughs> oh, no, so, <laughs> oh, you've really got to limit the amount of uh, Kevin Mitchell you put into your podcast, otherwise people will stop listening. Oh, it's really oh. <laughs> oh no! But uh, 1997 was the year that Radiohead put out OK Computer, which Indeed. you know, I think everybody even all 21 years later is still regarded as a one of the great rock albums of, of all time yeah and i do remember that record coming out and everybody losing their shit it, it really felt like this band was really breaking new ground when paranoid android first came out you know the first single from the from the new record and it was like this 7 minute long dramatic it was like we had a new Bohemian Rhapsody or something. That was one of the inspirations, uh, I hear. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, apparently, I was doing some research, and um, that's a song that Radiohead directly drew inspiration from. Because it, well, the the song, as we'll talk about when we get there, um, was kind of it kind of started as a joke. Well, that's weird, isn't it? Because, you know, when their first big hit, um, Creep, you know, that those stabs of guitar that Johnny Greenwood does, mm. that was his attempt to kind of fuck up the song because he hated it. And oh, they ended wow. up becoming... These, you know, those guitar stabs ended up becoming one of the major hooks of the, that song and why everyone loved it so much. He was actually trying to kill his, <laughs> kill the song. How does it feel to be Radiohead that you can't even destroy your own songs? You're too exactly. good. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, fuck, what a band. Yeah. And that, that album was just incredible. And the people were losing their shit when it came out. It was groundbreaking. No, no one could touch them in terms of just the, the amount of widespread... Um, admiration that that band had at that time and, and for the you know years following 
was just, you know, it was huge. And, yeah. and when I listened back, I just think, <laughs> when we're putting out Leaving Home, that was about the other side of the world doing fucking, you know, uh, Karma Police and Paranoid Android and stuff. You know, it's just think, fuck me. Like, I can't believe we're even in the same list of 100 songs, let alone 10. Your neighbours. Uh, it's just, you know, that, that to me just seems completely ludicrous. Foo Fighters were a good one, 97 too. Because is that is Monkey Wrench 97? It is indeed, yeah. You guys did Monkey Wrench, yeah. Yeah. I remember that song when that came out, and that was kind of like everyone realised that, that that first Foo Fighters record wasn't going to be just a weird novelty. It was actually yes. was some, something really kind of cool brewing. And I mean, then they kind of lost me after a while as well, but at the time I thought that was a great song. It's certainly one of my favourite songs in the in the 97 countdown as well. Yeah. I was big in a monkey wrench when I was in high school. Yeah, yeah. So what about these days? Like, I'm always fascinated asking kind of what established artists like yourself uh, are, are interested in musically, you know, going around. Because like when you, be- I feel like when you become a musician, your way of listening to music is kind of not the same. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, I realised very soon after kind of started making records and stuff, it does kind of kill the way you listen to music because you start analysing stuff. Yeah, It's yeah. really hard. I think that's why alcohol and drugs kind of play a part because... Sure. Just gets you out of your head a bit. It gets you out of your head and you have the opportunity to listen, to hear music the way that you used to before you started making it. Because right. you know, now when I listen to music, I can still appreciate it, still really enjoy it, but I'm going, oh, listen to that snare sound or... Oh, isn't that, oh, they brought that middle eight in like, you know, yeah. bars earlier than I thought they were going to. Or, oh, wow, they, that verse is like they're singing a different thing over the same chords as the, you know. And you just spend the whole time just in analytical mode. It's very hard to recapture that feeling of hearing that all the stuff that got you into music when you were a kid or a teenager. It's really hard to recapture that feeling, you know. I think that's the same for everyone, though. Like, I, I know yeah. for me as well, like, you know, just from consuming a lot of music, I feel like I kind of get numbed out sometimes, mm-hmm. and it takes something really special to kind of, like, awaken that, that immediate, raw, purely emotional passion that you kind of uh, naturally have access to when music's a new thing for you. Yeah, I think it can still happen. It just doesn't happen as regularly and takes something pretty out of the box. It's probably just a survival mechanism for our brain, because if we always got as excited about music as we did when we were teenagers, like on a constant basis, we just, we just die. Like, <laughs> it's just, too much. Yeah, way too much. Way too much. I can't live like that, man. Imagine, imagine if the podcast was just all of us going like, it's amazing all the time. Know, like, yeah. we... It'd be like if you were a constant state of orgasming. It, yeah, no good. No good. You'd get nothing done. You'd get absolutely nothing done. It's like, how does Sting, I mean, how does Sting still make any music when he's like having sex for like three days straight? I mean, that's just insane. And then when he does, it's with Shaggy. <laughs> Um, uh, your friend of mine, David James Young, swears by it. He's been talking about that album ever since it came out. I do not know how ironic he's being, so <laughs> maybe one to check out. But like, are there a couple of artists at the moment that you're just really, really digging? I came across uh, this a woman called Amaya Losarika. She's a Melbourne singer-songwriter, and she wrote, her new record, it's called Rituals, came out just a couple of months ago, and that record really kind of 
blew me away. It's her fourth album, and I, I, you know, was ignorant to her previous work, but um, but yeah, that record is really, really cool. It's just super dreamy. It's got guitars in it, but it's not rock. It's maybe it's got like little bits of kind of Mazzy Star in it, but just really ambient, dreamy indie pop music. And the other thing, one that I've heard recently that I really dig is uh, DMAs. I heard a song of theirs on the plane. I think it's called Dawning. And it just reminded me of just beautiful, great English pop music like Teenage Fan Club. And it's really well produced and the vocals sound really good and the melodies are just so catchy. And yeah, I really, really like that as well. Kevin, thank you so much for your time. You've been incredibly generous with it. It's been an absolute pleasure and honour to to speak with you and um, and to, to do this kind of chat. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been my pleasure too, and I... Look forward with my <laughs> nervousness and anxiety. <laughs> well, yeah, because we have to tear it apart now. We've got to do it. Just uh, just at least someone, just so I know that, you know, I'm not getting a free ride. <laughs> <laughs> and it means, it means a lot to have you listening, man. I appreciate that a whole lot. Cheers. Thank you. There he goes. Absolute legend, Kevin Mitchell, a.k.a. Bob Evans. Now, if you want to stay up to date with what's happening with Jebediah and with Bob Evans' music, uh, you can check out Jebediah.net. Heaps of stuff up there, including all their upcoming tour dates. Also, bobevans.com.au. let you know what's happening on that side of the musical field. You can also follow him on Twitter at Bob Evans Music. And you can check out his podcast, which has pretty much the best name for any podcast ever. You ready for this? Good Evans, it's a Bobcast. Yeah, have a search for that one and uh, give that one a listen as well. Until next time, where we talk about the top ten of the 1997 Hottest 100, including Leaving Home by Jebediah. My name is Adam Buncher. Everything is good for you, including hanging out with Kevin Mitchell.